Well, hello. Well, hello. Now, I am still <laughs> reeling and kind of trying to process something that I saw the other day. Mm. I almost asked you and then I thought, no, I'm just going to go by myself and you actually in South Australia anyway. But I went to see the film Everything Everywhere <gasps> All at Once. Oh, okay. I've been... I've been meaning to see that because it looks like something that I would like. Yeah, my friend George saw it and he's been to see it twice and he said I'll be really keen to know what you think when you go to it and he said it's quite full on and he said I I can't really even describe to you because I was like well what's it about and he said I just I can't even have a stab at telling you what it's about you just need to go. Now the first thing I should... That's interesting because like everybody who has described it has said I can't describe it Yeah, it's amazing. So the first thing I need to do is make an admission (laughs) which is I fell asleep. (laughs) <laughs> well, that's an excellent start. Okay, so this, the cinema was overheated and right. I was a bit tired. And so in the first half hour of the film, I reckon I dozed off for about 12 minutes. And so... I love that you timed it. <laughs> well, I, I don't think it was very much because... That's a sort of state. That's, that's the length of a prime ministerial interview on 7.30, isn't it? Like you're just like, I can take a strategic nap here because I've pre-recorded. <laughs> I was fighting it. So I kept getting – it was in an action sequence. So for anyone who's seen the film, and I'm not spoiling anything for anyone who hasn't, it's the very first action sequence where they've gone to the – Action sequences totally put me to sleep. Yeah. I'm always like, what was that guy? I know you hate action. Yeah. So it was – it's when they go in the car. (laughs) It's when they go to the auditor's office for the first time. Why is there a helicopter? And so I had just enough of an understanding of, oh, right, okay, it's going to be a multiverse kind of thing. Sorry, it's it's about auditors. What? (laughs) It's about tax. It's about getting Sorry, the tax Sorry, okay, done. now you've said it multiverse, actually, which gives me a hive. Yeah, see, if, I know, yeah. I know, okay. So I, I kind of, mm-hmm. I got the gist, like, all right, they're looking at, you know, alternative lives, but then I've fallen asleep and I've gotten jolted awake every time there's been a loud crash bang. And so every time I've been jolted awake, I've seen, oh, they're still in the audit office in this action sequence. And then it must have, I must have just needed a power nap because... As we got to the end of that action sequence, which was quite long, then I was like felt refreshed and then I stayed awake for the remaining part of the film. It's two hours and 20 minutes, so it's a long film. Can you imagine the director listening to this? Like, <laughs> oh, you what? But this is my way of saying... put a lot of energy into that fight scene. <laughs> I don't think I missed anything particularly significant to the plot is what, what I'm trying to get. So trying there's to a multi... All I know is multiverse, which makes me not want to see it again. All you, all so, you know is multiverse and tax audit. Right. <laughs> I am really doing a good sell on this film. Um, so it was actually like I, I was writing down notes as the film. Listener um, note: She's went now on. opened her notes app. <laughs> <laughs> this is what you were tapping away at when you were not dozing through this action-packed film. So I was writing down things like: What is this about? Is it about family? Is it about relationships between husbands and wives, mothers and daughters, fathers and daughters? Is it about choices in life, paths not taken? Is it about the impermanence of everything? Is it a commentary on women being overburdened? Well, I'm in the cinema alone. Why? <laughs> And then I wrote, am I awake or am I asleep? And then I wrote down all of the films. It wasn't like any of these films content-wise or stylistically, mm. but it was giving me the same feeling as oh, the following okay. films. The Matrix, Memento. Oh, God. Oh, God. The Clock. That you know, oh, Eternal Sunshine just of the Spotless Mind. To be correct, mind. I did not groan about Memento. I love that film. I groaned about The Matrix because I'm like... Oh, you didn't like The Matrix? Well, I got mixed up. Well, you will get mixed up in this film too. <laughs> I mean, but like, my mixed up but you know how the is ma- low. Well, that's why I thought maybe not the right time for you. But did, did The Matrix give you a kind of an, an eternal sunshine of the spotless mind and those things? Did they give you that odd discombobulating sense of time? Well, that made me feel a bit tired. 
Okay. Um, so the Matrix I, in particular, everyone's wearing black leather. It makes it very difficult to tell. <laughs> so this who. film, when I left, I felt like, like every gangster movie ever. I'm like, but why is he called Shorty? All right, okay. But hang on, what's his relationship to Curly? Like, <laughs> how come he got whacked? I thought he was the good guy. Okay. Jeremy will not come and see a gangster movie with me anymore because I'm like, but okay, so that guy, why? I thought he was getting made. It's right. Is, is Mark 10 bigger than Mark 9? <laughs> What's Mark mean? Um, so, okay, you're going to need to, if you go and see this film, set that impulse aside okay. to try to be like, who's this person in relation to this and how does this fit with that? Because you have to kind of just let it wash over you mm-hmm. and you have to just pick the meaning where it hits you. Yep. So I also wrote down, is this comedy? Is it action? Is it sci-fi? <laughs> It was so, it was all of those things. I was laughing at bits of it. It was amazing. Was anyone in there just taking weird pictures of you as you (laughs) alternately napped, laughed hysterically (laughs) to yourself, scribbled furtively on your phone? Like, because it sounds to me like you might have provided quite a lot of entertainment (laughs) for some random. I may well have. Now, I think that this film, like all good pieces of art, you know, literature or, or artworks, music, whatever. I think it reflects to you what the meaning that you want to take at the time. Mm -hmm. So I thought that it was about women being overburdened and at their absolute limits and pushed to their absolute limits. And so there was was a couple of bits that really stuck with me, but one of the lines was um, this little device that is switching them between their alternate lives. At one point the woman was going between multiple lives and a lot was happening and it said, reaching mental capacity and I was like oh yeah (laughs) totally that's what this film's about but then other people that I've asked about it have thought it was say about the relationship between mothers and daughters okay um be quite a good thing I think for Ords to go to I think Ords might really like it we say you and Ords could go um but you and Jeremy could also go because it's also about husband and wives relationships um so yeah it it, it was interesting to me that like you've been talking about it for 10 minutes now and you haven't mentioned who's (laughs) in it are the actors good oh the all of the leads are absolutely (sighs) brilliant they all deserve major awards I think Michelle Yeoh who is that really brilliant actress who was in Crouching Tiger Memoirs of a Geisha tons and tons of different things Crazy Rich Asians she's the lead um, and she was really really superb Jamie Lee Curtis is the tax auditor no get out yeah they're, they're all her daughter I mean the daughter the husband the Michelle Yeoh's father and Jamie Lee Curtis are the leads right. and they're all superb. So it was the kind of film that when I left, I felt like this is going to seem really strange when I just walk out of here into daylight in the street because <laughs> it felt like I had been really transported. So I will be very, very keen okay, to well, hear I'm what definitely you think gonna, of it. I'm definitely going to go see that because I was sort of thinking, you know, I'm just massively drawn by the title. I really love the title. I love a stupid long title for my, a film. My gut feeling is that, you're going to love it. Mm. I think it's going to be one of those things where we're in total agreement that we both love it. It also reminded me of A Fraction of the Whole. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's a lot, as the title would indicate, and you just have to hold on to that bucking bronco for the adventure. Or have a nap, whatever takes you mood. Yeah, it's funny because, I mean, like, yeah, I'm feeling super overloaded at the moment and um, I couldn't hack the Elvis film because yeah. it felt – but I think that was a feeling of just overloadedness and too much stimulus happening. It was kind of 
Yeah, this this is like it also the director. Your Baz Luhrmann film would be busy. <laughs> yeah, I, don't know, I mean, it just should like the directors couldn't see that coming. The directors are um, the Daniels. They're two blokes named D- Daniel, right? Um, and they're music video directors. And I also felt like stylistically, it was a bit like TikTok. It's oh, okay. moving massively quickly between mm-hmm. various scenes, so it, it is overloading. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> Okay, I can always yeah, but just take be prepared off. that yeah. it's overloading. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But yeah. it's I, I really, really liked it. Great. Yeah. Okay. So well, satisfied customer. <laughs> absolutely satisfied customer. <laughs> <laughs> um, can I tell you something else that really satisfied me? No, no, yeah. you should talk because I've been banging on. I've been on a monologue. Um. Well, I mean, I feel like because the last two times we've talked has been on stage at the Enmore. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that, was, that was pretty hectic. How did you feel after those shows were over? Because I just woke up. On the so your show was on the Friday, mine was on the Saturday, and I woke up on the Sunday, and it was like the first time in two years that I hadn't worried like woken up with <laughs> at least part of my brain worrying how I was going to perform a Hamilton number on stage in front of sixteen hundred people, you know and it was just like it was such bliss. It was very very funny. So how did you actually practice that? Uh, well, the great Kate Knott and I kind of colluded on lyrics like two years ago um, and she's got like an incredible brain um, and she's got her own one-woman show coming up. Wow. I think I've got dates and times yet but I will definitely will post them because she is a very talented yes. chatter and um, she has an improv music group but is doing a um oh great amazing oh i'd love to see that uh, yeah we'll definitely go anyway um but she's very very clever and some of the like best lines in that song as rewritten it's quite hard to scan because like the yeah um were from her and um so i had been sort of practicing it in the shower and kind of changing the odd rhyme and (laughs) trying to like commit it to memory for years basically and then when we got quite close i and I started rehearsing it out loud rather than just in my head, I remembered that I can't really sing. <laughs> so there were some bits I'm like, oh, I can't actually do that. <laughs> I remember I was rehearsing, like I performed it to Kate, my nine-year-old, and she's like, well, that's brave. I'm like, oh. <laughs> well, do you know, your kids were all very proud of you at the end of that. For anyone who hasn't listened to the podcast from the second um, Enmore show, Crab performed with the brilliant Virginia Gay, the opening number of Hamilton rewritten to be about me. Your ki- and our kids that night were all watching from the wings. Yeah. And when I came off, they all were saying variations of, you know, oh, wow, mum absolutely nailed that. But also I can't remember which child it was. Was it Elliot or Kate said, oh, mum's been practising that in the shower for so long. <laughs> But they were really very, enjoying that. They were very, very <laughs> proud of you. But it was so so. How I felt after it was, I just kept laughing aloud the next day after that, going the audacity of her, and that was so brilliant. It was just, I just found it so amazing. Um, the best thing was your face when you like when I came out in the dressing room with the gear on and you like looked at me and all the colour drained from your face and I mean Audrey actually took a picture of you which is so funny because you were just like the look of just concern for me. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what went through my mind I'm not surprised today that the colour drained from my face because what went through my head was because I had no idea what you were doing and then you've suddenly donned the frilly necked (laughs) shirt and then it's dawned on me that your hair's in the low ponytail with the bits at the front and so I've thought (gasps) oh She's going out there as Hamilton. And then I thought, 
I actually went and sat down because my brain was like clocking it over because you'd introduced me to a, a woman outside the, as our, you said, this is she's going to be our accompanist tonight. Yeah. And then Virginia Gay was there. And so I sat down and I thought, so she could, she cannot be doing a number from Hamilton. Like, they are so difficult. Like, there's no way that she could be doing that. And then I'm like, but why would that Why would that accompanist be here? And why would Virginia Gay be here? And then I thought, no, she must just be, maybe Virginia's doing something and she's just dressed as Alexander Hamilton. And so then when we sat, when I sat on stage and I heard the piano go, but da-da-da-da-da-da, and you walked out, how does it? I just went, she's doing it. Oh, my God. And then I was just like speechless and there was, I remember there was a bit where you wanted to change microphones and like so there was this awkward silence which Virginia then padded yeah. and it was because like I was literally speechless at like this is so difficult like I can't believe that she's doing this but you both it was so brilliant it was just well, thank amazing. God for Virginia because when I realized oh hell I really like I can't sing well enough to pull off and there's you need more than one voice really oh. to make it work well the and other thing too that struck me was just because you learn one verse of that song it doesn't mean that you can then just apply that to the next verse because the rhythm is different yeah. in every single verse yes. so <laughs> that was the other thing I was thinking out the back thinking I don't she's because she's not musical I don't think she understands how <laughs> difficult this is going to oh be God, you just least played my own show to me <laughs> do you, you understand this is tricky right I mean so my delight when you were just nailing it and I like again I was just thinking the work she's put into this is just absolutely epic. The other thing that just blew my mind and it was so adorable was um that you got Kirk Hamilton from Strong Songs oh, to yeah. uh and I emailed him as soon as I got home and just said Oh, that just blew my mind that you had gone to so much trouble um, for doing that. And, geez, I cacked myself as well that he said that his Australian fan base, thanks to Chat 10, is as big as his American fan base. I know. And that he gets asked twice a month to do You're the Voice by John Farnham. I know. He's the greatest man, and I, you just get the sense that he really enjoys getting the Farnsy requests. Oh, just like, oh, he, yes. he's just absolutely <laughs> adorable. So, yeah, the whole thing was great. But they, they are kind of exhausting, those shows. Can I just all say thank, and I have um, individually done this, but as always, so many chatters dropped us off lovely notes and presents and food. Oh, yeah, I've got a thank you note to write about that, which, of course, I'll put on my list of things that I feel bad about. Um, but, yeah, there was like a ridiculous stack of backstage goodies and they were gorgeous. Very um, lovely letters and notes and stuff too. It was well, it was a very overwhelming weekend. It really was. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. And then I backed up for my final week of 7.30. Now, that is bizarre because that was unplanned and I just, <sighs> think we always seems to happen where we, we just plan things and then they all end up happening at the same time as something quite enormous like yeah we well, did not expect for that those shows to be before no, we, your we, we, last week because we have to book the venues so far ahead yeah. of you know when the show and then you had are. to go to the logies as well which i mean <laughs> that's hard work people i just like it's my it's like my nightmare like you have to get your hair done and you know i know oh, and then i had like Lots of contacts who I'd been trying to get for ages finally agreed to come, you know, in the final patch of 7.30. So it was actually, you know, a challenging work. Yeah, you had to get your job application. Had to actually do my job. Yeah. Oh, that was very funny too. So I had the head of ACES who never has ever done a television interview, the equivalent of our CIA MI6. And on the Saturday night, at the, oh, sorry, the Friday night at the Chat 10 show, Chris Brown, who was one of my guests, revealed that his nickname for me is 00730. <laughs> and then it just so happened on the Monday night that 
the head of ACES, Paul Simon, was coming on the program and I asked him something like, so, you know, what kind of people do you look to recruit? And his answer, it set the Chat 10 group on fire, particularly among people who'd heard Chris Brown refer to me as 00730 and who know my love of all spy things because Paul Simon said, well, you know, frankly, Lee, it's a lot like what you do and it is a great job for people after a mid-career change. And it was like he was actually (laughs) pitching. And so the Chat 10 group lit up with people going, did anyone just hear that? They tried to recruit her on air. So it was this hilarious kind of outburst of of things about that that was going to be my next job. Very oh, funny. God. Anyway, it, well done. It was spectacular and, oh, my God, I'm it, so it was, thrilled that it's over but also that it was all so much fun. And thank you to everybody who joined in using the live stream as well, which was oh, great. Yeah. It was so cool because we always feel bad about not being able to get around to, like, every nook and cranny of Australia, but it feels like it's a way for people to kind of, like, come and have a bit of a laugh. Even Absolutely. Though, uh, Do you know what I did the next day on the Sunday to kind of decompress a bit, but then it made me realise how exhausted and stressed I was? I went to the cinema by myself again. Mm-hmm. I do have friends, people, okay? Sure. I do have people yep. And I saw this film that's had only limited cinema release and it's already gone, so you have to watch out for it on a streaming service. It was a documentary called uh, George Michael, Freedom Uncut. Oh. Have you heard about this? No. Oh, so it's this documentary that George Michael started work on about his own life before he died and then it's since been finished by friends. Mm. And it covers his life basically from the end of Wham. He touches on Wham really briefly Mm. and then it's about his solo career. Oh, right. And so it opens with, do you know the song Freedom 90? Of course. Yep. So it opens with the film clip for that, one of the greatest film Mm -hmm. clips of all time, Mm -hmm. played in full. That's the first thing that you see in the documentary. And pretty much as soon as it started, I just started bawling, like not not even just like a little bit of crying, like weeping, bawling. And it was partly because nostalgia, like Mm. just pushed all these nostalgia buttons from 1990. And then also I realised... Oh, my God. I've never seen this film clip except on a small TV screen because when we were kids, film clips were of just course. on right. TV. right. So you've only ever seen it on a teeny... TV. And so suddenly... Oh, oh, that's it's cool. This David Fincher-directed film clip of these... For anyone who remembers it, it's the greatest supermodels, you know, of all time, yeah. all of them, Cindy Crawford, Linda Evangelista, Christy Turlington and, and a couple of others. And you never see George Michael, but it's this brilliantly shot and it's all these just gobsmackingly beautiful women shot in the most extraordinary way. So, And then it's a great song. And so it's this overload of awesomeness all in one go and they play the whole thing in are a way you, that you've never Are you paying more attention to this now that you've been in a Madonna film clip yourself? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's You're the like, same director. Yes. David Fincher directed mm-hmm. Vogue and yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so then, and I loved Having George been Michael. directed by Fincher yourself, if, if indirectly, <laughs> you feel. <laughs> I absolutely loved George Michael too when I was a teenager. So he talked about how... He said when he kind of burst out with his solo career and he brought out the album Faith, yep. which is a great album, mm-hmm. and you remember he had the bomber jacket yep. and mm-hmm. the glasses mm-hmm. and the guitar and all the mm-hmm. rest of it, the jeans. And he said, look, I was insecure because there was four big acts in that era, Michael Jackson, Madonna, mm-hmm. Prince. Prince and George Michael. Yep. And he said they all had these massive personas and identities and these creative sort of personas that they evolved. And I was just this dude from London who was a good singer and a kind of shy, introverted dude. So he said the the persona for Faith was kind of – invented to give me a persona so I didn't feel like a complete fraud oh. in, with these other this other group of people. Right. And then he said, um, but that person wasn't me. In fact, he says something like, you know, I had to wear those glasses all the time. I didn't make eye contact with another human being for three years. 
Wow. And he said, I was at the point where it was so not me, I felt that I was going to have to give everything up if I couldn't if get away from that persona. So that's why in Freedom 90 oh. you see those shots of the jacket being set on fire and the jukebox oh. being blown up and all of those images from that era getting blown up. And then he goes and talks about how he falls in love for the first time with this dude. I don't want to spoil his whole life story, but that clearly is the pivotal moment of his yeah. life. Mm. And then he kind of goes from there. But it's just full of they have all these amazing musicians sitting. They've got these stylized shots where they have Elton John, what's Oasis guy's name? Liam um, Gallagher. People that George Michael had done things with, James Corden, Stevie Wonder, wow. um, Mary wow. J. Blige, incredible people. And they're listening. They put on this turntable record and then they sit there listening to it and you, you just were watching their face while they're listening to it. And then they'll say, you know, Elton will go, oh, wow, listen to that. And then so oh, that's cool. Yeah, and Liam Gallagher's like, oh, that's very John Lennon, that bit, you know. And so that's really awesome. And then they're playing clips, like say with Elton, they play when they did a duet of Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me and with Stevie Wonder they did this just blistering take of Living in the City. And then they, so they play the clips. And, again, you're watching them for the first time on a big screen mm. with proper, mm. you know, sound. And so because – all of those people I love. I, like I just barely stopped crying for the entire time. It was uh, it was wow. unbelievable. So if you're an, if you're a kind of teenager from the 1980s, um, it was absolutely fantastic. And just hearing George Michael explain his life and how he song wrote and then having the other musicians commentate on it and seeing all of that stuff from our teenage years on the screen in a really great way. So was how, how did they handle his death? They didn't really kind of address it. It just finished. I'm trying to think what it ended with. He was talking about, oh, I don't know, his, what he wanted his legacy to be, I think, mm. in an interview. And mm. he was saying, somebody asked him, how would you ultimately like to be remembered? And he said, as a great songwriter. So it kind of ended with mm. that. They didn't really address. Um, in fact, I had to then go away and Google, what did he die of again? And it was just some kind of indeterminate heart failure -y. didn't yeah. seem to be drugs or anything involved. His sister died quite young too. Yeah. So, yeah, anyway, it was brilliant. And just watching him, I mean, oh, my God, what a talent. It was incredible. They, they played also that great clip from um, – remember when Freddie Mercury died and he had to go on stage. He, he sang Somebody to Love with Queen. Oh, at Stadium, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I do remember that, yeah. He was talking about how he wanted it to be – perfect because his boyfriend had been uh, had had a test for HIV they thought he had H HIV mm. and he said um I felt like if I delivered the most perfect performance that I could make it like a prayer for him and for me mm. and then they played you know the bit in the song where it's like somebody to love yeah. me and it starts building up and up yeah. and up and then they play it and it's like it, I've got goosebumps now thinking about it. it. It sounded exactly like a prayer and how he was doing it sounded like prayerful. And he just, for anyone who remembers that performance, it's one of the greatest of all time. He just sets fire to Wembley Stadium. And then when he explains what was going on in his personal life and in his oh head at the time, it really explains the intensity of it. Oh, it was amazing. I really think you and Kirk need to um, <laughs> set up a podcast where... 
he talks about the mechanics of the song and you talk about the emotional landscape oh, behind be what's going on in the artist's <laughs> oh, That would brain. be amazing. Right. We I'd need to it. make that happen. Is this your way of saying... you got a bit of time right now, have you? Is this your way of saying, can no, I have a hive off point so you don't have to hear any more <laughs> music nerdery? No, no, I love listening to you. I always learn a little bit when you give me this little rundown and I really want to see that film now. So, Oh, you, you will know, yeah. really... Anyone of our age, I think, would really Look like it. you sneaking off after your big shows to go and watch your little <laughs> nerdy... George Were you a George Michael, Michael fan? Did you have those albums? Oh, yeah. I mean, um, yeah, of course, a huge fan. And I think that was in the era of the, you know, fluorescent socks and, oh, you yeah. know, all that. Wow. That Crimes of the, the wham, 80s. Wham Jeez. stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He, um, I mean, you know, I, I don't like to keep banging on, but I will. Um, now, it just reminded me too of, like, you know how, say, with us, because we do say chat 10 together, we can mm. talk about the experience of, you know, what that's like mm. and we both understand it. So you've got someone to bounce off. We're also both gifted songwriters, obviously. Mm. <laughs> and so, so, you know, our creative partnership puts me in mind of Wham, George Michael and Andrew <laughs> Richley. No, but he said, George Michael says one of the things that he found so hard when he became solo was when it was him and Andrew Ridgely who'd been old mates for a long time before yeah. Wham became this global yeah. phenomenon. He said, I had someone that grounded me to my old life mm. and that we could have a laugh about it. We could go, isn't this insane? It's just so bizarre. But then, you know, George wanted to have the solo career. Andrew didn't want to do anything. And then George said, then when I went off by myself, then I had nothing tethering to me yeah, to right. my old kind of life. That's so interesting, that stuff about the persona as well and, you know, the extent to which he felt completely chafed by that. That's, yeah. I've never realised that. Did he and Andrew Ridgely, I mean, did they fall out or did they remain friends? Well, I, I, he didn't say, but Andrew Ridgely wasn't in the doc, in the doco, right, okay. which I thought was okay. kind of interesting. interesting. But somebody was who else I was talking to about it said, oh, he just wanted to, you know, not be famous anymore and live a very quiet kind of life. Mm. There's a great bit where they're talking too about when George kind of burst onto the scene, he was topping all the black charts because he's got a very soulful yep. voice and mm-hmm. very soulful sounding music. And um, it was controversial because there were black artists who felt like this isn't fair now that this white right. artist is yep. getting mm-hmm. airplay and attention that, you know, a, formerly a black artist yep. would get. There's this great bit where Stevie Wonder goes, oh, is George white? <laughs> <laughs> Stevie Wonder was awesome. He, he was sitting there with this instrument that I didn't recognise in front of him where he'd be listening to music and then he'd just be picking out little riffs and stuff mm. and... And he was like, oh, yeah, I love this bit. He goes, he goes something like, baby. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a grand day out. It was. Hey, speaking of which, and I think you've pushed yourself to the, you know, nearly to the time limit, haven't oh, you? What? I know. God, sorry. I've I just talked the whole time. That's so good, though. I love it when you waste time. And it's not just me <laughs> crapping on. Um, I wanted to quickly just send up a little balloon of love for Frank Morehouse who died oh, yeah. um, a couple of weeks ago and I've just been thinking about, you know, the stuff that he contributed to the Australian cultural landscape because I think he's such a mixed up, interesting, like a writer of pure genius, like a great, great observer and as I've banged on about many times, I remember when I started reading his books, you know, I always read a lot, but quite indiscriminately. Like when I was a teenager, I think I read a lot, lived on a farm, you know, and um, I just read all the time, but I had no sense of what was good or bad writing. I remember thinking, what am I even like, you know, is this good? Is this bad? I don't know. I just, you know, and then I reckon when I read his books was the first time I thought, oh, this is really good. Like this is, you know, I could tell that this is really good. And I think partly it was because he was like describing he grew up in Nowra uh, and he said once that all his life he's really just written about Nowra in different ways. He's really good at 
observing groups and how they function, like communities and how they function, who's the kind of pompous self-regard leader person and who's the kind of outlier and, you know, all of that. Like, and I think that's been a pattern throughout his whole writing life. Um, but I think that the really special thing about him was that he was always gentle and generous in the way that he wrote about people. And I think one of the really remarkable things about him is that he had been writing for a long time about gender fluidity. He'd been very kind of curious in his own, in terms of his own identity. And, of course, one of the great characters that he created, Edith, from the Grand Days trilogy, was a female character, a really great female character, so great, actually, that you kind of constantly have to check, oh, this this woman was written by a man. Anyway, I really will miss him a lot. I got to meet him a few times and he's always been a gentle, kind of curious, funny, charming, completely unique person. And I think he's one of the greats. I have to confess I haven't read a single Frank Morehouse book. Right, yeah. So would I – should I read Grand Days? Or what should I read? Well, Grand Days, Dark Palace, Cold Light is the trilogy. It is a fabulous piece of work. And he – I mean, he started out life as a journalist, didn't go to university, went and became a cadet journalist, and then he was sort of part of the Sydney Push. He was um, writing short stories and so on and eventually became a full-time writer. But he also um, – he um, was a litigant in a case that es- essentially established Australian copyright law <laughs> and he then helped to set up the Australian Copyright Agency. So he's really good at looking after writers and he was kind of like a – he was like a unionised writer. <laughs> like, um, but he won a fellowship or a grant under the Creative Nation, like the Keating oh, Numbers yeah. Creative Nation. and he got like, I don't know, 100 grand or something to go to Geneva and research – what became this trilogy. And and the trilogy is about a young woman from a country town. She's kind of like smart, ambitious, super naive, and she gets a job at the League of Nations. And she goes to Geneva and she doesn't know what she's doing and she meets all these people, including her kind of guy goes on to be her partner, Ambrose, who's gender fluid. Anyway, over the course of the novels, it's kind of the history of that time period and Australia's engagement in the world as well as as it's the Mm. story of this young woman wow but the extraordinary thing about the trilogy is that the the research work that he's done to make this incredibly convincing is just so evident like there's a richness to the writing that you can tell is because he's traveled to geneva he's gone through like all these archives oh right and the third part of the trilogy cold light is set in post-war canberra and it's it's in the middle of, you know, the communist legislation to ban communism. It's a really interesting period of Australian history and you kind of get to witness his retelling, but it's immaculately researched, of the growth of Canberra and the growth of the Australian government in oh. those years. And it's just, it's really gripping. And she's a great character. The depth and power of the the work is definitely because of his opportunity to, to research it all. And it made me just think, you know, I mean, in the last few years, we've talked a lot about, you know, the arts and the effect on the performing arts, particularly uh, of COVID. But one kind of form of making art that we don't really publicly subsidise is writing. You know, I mean, we have a couple of prizes, you know, like the Prime Minister's Literary Awards, which are like 
generous and terrific. But you've got to win one of those and it's like 50 grand, which is huge. But also like this, you know, he got a grant in advance to research and write this trilogy, which has become one of the great works of Australian literature. Like it's totally worth the investment. But, I mean, I think when we think about public art in Australia, we think about, you know, commissioning a sculpture or, Mm. you know, or buying Mm. a painting for a gallery or even, you know, the subsidy to major arts organisations and that sort of thing. But there's really not that much for writers and, you know, what with all the writers' festivals being cancelled or, you know, downgraded in recent years, a lot of those writers haven't had what is essentially their introduction of their work in a way that makes it fly. You yeah, know? good point. Anyway, so it just made me think, God, that was, I mean, the investment, the public investment in the, in those three books of Frank's were just incredibly well spent because, mm. you know, the, the, the richness and interest that you get in even living through that period of history through the eyes of a an Australian character is quite remarkable and unique and right. it's it's there's so much work that's gone into it that it's compelling and it's powerful you know he was actually um, he was overlooked for the Miles Franklin for the first book which was a tremendous book because it was deemed not to be sufficiently Australian because oh. she spends most of the period of the book in Geneva wow. I know I mean I think he then won it for Grand Days so right. um, I mean uh, Dark Palace which is the next part of the the trilogy but wow what an amazing oh, decision that's incredible yeah. <laughs> This, um, the way you're talking about that's reminding me of something I'm reading at the moment, which is a book called Secrets Beyond the Screen by Anita Jacoby, who is... Oh, I've got that on my bedside table. So she, her name would be well known to anyone in journalism because she's one of the great uh, yep. producers um, in Australian television history. And she's written a book which is, a, is basically an investigation into her own father. And he moved to Australia as a refugee from Germany around the Second World War. Mm-hmm. The family background was Jewish, although they weren't really practising Jews, mm. so, but he was kind of too Jewish to survive in Germany. Right. But then when he got to Australia, he was kind of a bit too German. Right. And so he was actually put in an internment camp. Oh, but, yeah, right. but Anita never knew any of this. And so after her father died, so the book opens with she's at a, a dinner with some people, birthday a birthday dinner, and somebody says to her, oh, you know about the court case involving your father? And she's like, no. And it was before she was born. So she starts investigating um, her own dad. And so a bit like Frank Morehouse, the quality of the research around this particular Mm. period in Australia is extraordinary. And I I don't want to spoil the kind of stuff she discovers about her own father, but he had this entire life before he married Anita's mother and had, you know, Anita, that was utterly unknown to her when she was alive and absolutely God. astonishing. And so it's kind of hard to put the book down because mm. you're like, you like it, it's really well written and so it gives you this sense of what Anita must have felt like as she was uncovering it. And because she's a great producer and researcher, mm. um, it's got amazing archival stuff, letters, court documents, police reports all about her father and her father's experience, um, stuff from the internment camp where he was put... <laughs> It's really, really intriguing. And then it's kind of um, structured so you're cutting between his unknown life that Anita's uncovering but right. then also her explaining. And what voice is that told in, sort of third person? Um, third or, person. Yeah. No, sorry, it's it's still first person because Anita's writing. Right, okay. The whole mm. thing's written in first person. And then there's the chapters where Anita's kind of explaining her life with her father and mm. how she perceived her father and who her father was to her Mm. and so there's some interesting things around for anyone who's interested in journalism you know 
how she got a break in journalism and, and working, say, in commercial television in mm. the 1980s mm. as one of the few women yeah. and how she kept getting, you know, kicked in the chops and her father was a great, she was very close to her father. And so it's this portrait of this woman who adores and, and admires <laughs> and reveres her father uncovering this secret life. I mean, I know you love a secret life story oh God, too. I love a secret life. <laughs> so it's I'm planning really... on getting one as soon as I get a moment. <laughs> It's I'm starting a second family, people. Anyone in? <laughs> it's really, really interesting. Secrets Beyond the Screen, it's called by Anita Jacobi. Wow. But it paints a picture as well of what it was like in Australia and yeah, the suspicion right. with which German people were yep. viewed and the just kind mm. of racism that yep. existed. So anyway, and that's a, it, that's a very interesting period in Australian history too. So, Massively. Yeah, so anyway, I recommend it. Oh, my God. We've been rattling on for yonks. Okay, well, we um, better, better wrap it. Notice yeah. how now that I don't have a job anymore, I'm not pushed for time I, and so oh I'm my just God. very relaxed. We're going to get into like <laughs> Will Anderson-length podcasts, like <laughs> moving into the third hour of our pod. Imagine how how fit the chatters all get because like oh. people who go for walks and stuff are oh. like, oh, jeez, yeah, still buggered. I know. Um, um, so right, anyway, let's... again, a big thank you to everybody who helped with those shows and also our guests, the fabulous Nats, what I reckon, who very kindly donated his appearance fee, as did heaps of our guests. Oh, everyone did. They yep. were all so beautiful. Um, Sydney Story Factory also, who's our nominated charity for um, those shows, said that they had like such a great response from Chatters and lots of people actually went and made donations. So oh. um, thank you, everybody. Uh, thank you to the ACO and... Sam Matt, Chris oh Brown, God, Virginia yeah. Gay. Gay especially. And do catch, if you're in Melbourne, Virginia Gay's Serrano de Bergerac. Oh, OMG. Cannot wait. I'm going to make that. a special trip. And also, she's also in A Midsummer Night's Dream at the rebuilt Opera House. The Belvoir's doing like, there's only about four shows with the SSO in that beautiful new space, which looks incredible. And it features Virginia Gay. Oh, as Titania, uh, do I hear you say? No, baby. She's the fairy. She's puck. She's like a six-foot puck, man. And she's going to puck it real good. There's nothing that chick can't do. There is nothing. We love her. All right. All right. See you next time. Bye-bye.